2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, right? Is that where we're at? Is, every, is everybody where they want to be? <laughs> you might be shocked at the extent of lying in our society. Maybe not. Now, actually, research has shown that the average person, the average person, not a Christian, tells a lie every eight minutes. Uh, it's not my research. No, that's a lie. Yeah, that's right. If you put that into context, do you, ever, do you ever hear a statistic and then calculate it out? Do you do that or am I the only one that, where they say, you know, every eight minutes somebody does something and then you think there aren't enough people in the world to do that, you know? But uh, if somebody lies, if a person tells a lie every eight minutes, that's seven lies per hour, 112 lies a day if you're asleep eight hours. 40,880 lies a year and 2.8 million lies that you'll tell over a 70-year lifetime. Now, I know before I was a Christian, I probably lied more than that. Uh, I lied all the time. I, I, I didn't know what the truth was. So I can go for these statistics. I, I don't think it's all that out of proportion. Lying on a grand scale originated in the Garden of Eden, of course. God told Adam and Eve they could eat the fruit of all the trees except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He further told them that in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Pretty clear. Along came Satan. Lying to Eve, he said, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve believed the lie and mankind has been deceiving and being deceived by lying ever since. Lying is going to get even worse in the future. In our text, we're going to read of a time when lying wonders will be performed, a time of unrighteous deception, a time of strong delusion when mankind will believe the lie. Uh, that's the topic of chapter 2. That time is the seven-year great tribulation that is coming upon the earth. The believers in the city of Thessalonica had been lied to. They had been told that the seven-year great tribulation had already begun and that they were enduring its judgments. For sure, they were being persecuted. They were suffering tribulation, and they had been lied to that they were in the great tribulation. And this letter, and especially this chapter, was written to dispel that lie. A lot of other things going on in 2 Thessalonians, but that is a primary reason that Paul wrote this letter. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. The word for coming is parousia and was first used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and chapter 4, and he used it of the time when the church would be taken to be with Jesus before the great tribulation begins. And so we are safe in concluding that he's using it in the same way again. Gathering together is a word unique in its usage of the church, and here it refers to the believers of the entire church age congregating in the air, gathered together in the air to meet Jesus at the resurrection and rapture of the church. <clears throat> we talk about the church age because we believe that the church is a unique group of people that began on the day of Pentecost and continues until the resurrection and rapture of the church. 
and so the church age is all this time in which we live from the day of Pentecost forward until we're taken home. This verse is a summary of what we learned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the great rapture passage. Jesus is coming to gather his church from the earth to heaven in what is called the rapture. If you're a Christian, you could be caught up to heaven at any moment. Now, the Thessalonians believed that they could be caught up to heaven at any moment, but they were enduring intense persecution for their faith in Jesus. And while they were trying to put all of that into perspective, someone or some group lied to them. Because in verse 2, you read this. Uh, We ask you, it says at the end of verse 1, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. A better and more accepted translation of the final phrase of verse 2 is that the day of the Lord is now present. And, And so he's talking about an error that was circulating that the day of the Lord was happening right then. They were being lied to, being told they were in the great tribulation. The word shaken could be used of an earthquake. Troubled means frightened. It was like a spiritual earthquake had hit, and now they were still feeling its aftershocks. Someone had told them they were in the day of Christ. Now, the day of Christ, or the day of the Lord, is the time of God's judgment upon the earth. It includes the great tribulation. It's a time of unprecedented global tribulation that will last seven years. Now, technically, the day of the Lord also includes the entire millennial kingdom that follows the great tribulation, all the way up to and including the great white throne judgment that precedes eternity. And so we don't want to split hairs over it, but if you're talking about the day of Christ or the day of the Lord, it begins with the great tribulation once the church is removed and it extends all the way until the final judgment just before eternity future. They were being told that it had already begun, meaning they were in the great tribulation. And the lies were in three forms. Or or the possibility, uh, uh, Paul wasn't quite sure, but he thought there were at least three different ways they could be being lied to, by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. Spirit is probably referring to an utterance of a prophecy during a meeting of the church. Uh, And so uh, we talked about that in 1 Thessalonians. Paul said, you know, don't despise prophesying and don't quench the Spirit. Uh, and uh, if you read Paul's writings to the uh, Corinthian church, he certainly was into the church gathering and having meetings where individuals properly spoke in tongues and interpreted tongues and had words of prophecy and those kinds of things. But he also was very into people thinking about what was said and what was happening. Is it orderly? Is it biblical? And there's nothing wrong with testing a word of prophecy. So if somebody gets up and says, I feel like the Lord is saying this, all right, let's hear it, and then let's judge it. And by judge it, we mean, um, first of all, are you a Christian? Uh, Secondly, are you walking with the Lord? And then third, what's the content? Is Is this the kind of thing that the Lord would say to his people that he loves is it consistent with God's word? Uh, and I never have been able to understand the hesitancy of people to want to do those things. As if it just, as if the Holy Spirit will be totally quenched if you want to really listen to what he has to say. 
He goes through all the trouble of touching somebody with the gift of prophecy. And, and, you know, those of you who have a genuine gift, you think, oh, Lord, you really don't want me to do that, do you? I, you're not really prompting me to, to do that, are you? And then your heart starts beating real fast. And you say, oh, I know Gene's going to close out the meeting, and so it's, I'm not going to have time. And then your heart's beating. And then finally, you know you have to share. Uh, and, you know, God goes through all that trouble. Let's pay attention to what he has to say and, and let's really lock into it and so Paul says somebody had prophesied thus says the Lord we're in the great tribulation and it had gone unjudged and unchallenged and people were suffering and so they thought well okay I guess we misunderstood some of the timing of these things and perhaps we're in the great tribulation uh, it says by word and word probably refers to a rumor that Paul and the other apostles and teachers were now claiming that the great tribulation had begun. In other words, somebody traveling came through and said, well, I heard that Paul over, you know, in Berea was telling them that now he's had further revelation and that we actually are in the great tribulation. And so that's kind of a rumor thing. And letter probably refers to a false document with a forged signature. And so somebody... Uh, some false teacher uh, forged a letter as if it came from Paul and um, was circulating it or somehow got it into circulation in the church and it was teaching something false about the great tribulation. And so, uh, you know, we need to be a little bit, I, I, don't, I think there is a healthy skepticism. I, I really do. I mean, I, I, hate to, I hate to always come across as skeptical, but um, I think we need to have a healthy, I guess we should call it discernment. It comes across sometimes as being a skeptic, but we need a discernment uh, and think, okay, you know, is that, is that something that Paul would say? Did he really write this? Uh, and in our own lives, we need to be on guard because the devil is trying to, uh, you know, deceive us and tell us things that aren't true about the Lord. Now, in verses 3 through 7, Paul listed three events which occur before the great tribulation can begin, which show the church will be raptured ahead of time. First, he says the falling away must come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, some say that the falling away refers to the rapture. If so, case closed, because he's saying that has to occur before the great tribulation. However, it is not really referring to the rapture. Falling away is the word apostasy, and this is an active departure and deliberate abandonment of biblical Christianity by those who profess to be Christians. Now, there have been deceivers in apostasy throughout the history of Christianity. A modern survey of groups professing to be Christians reveals large-scale departure and abandonment from biblical Christianity. We read articles all the time, do we not, about another denomination or another group of Christians that no longer believes in the virgin birth or in the deity of Christ or the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or any of these things. Uh, they, they're not just changing their practices to fit with society. They're actually demolishing Bible doctrine. Uh, and so there's always been that kind of apostasy. Groups like us and other Bible-believing churches are ridiculed most by liberal churches that reject those things. Does that mean we are already in the Great Tribulation? Well, not at all. There will always be apostasy, but this is identifying the apostasy. This is a unique 
falling away in the end times, and it is associated with what Paul next mentioned. So there's three things Paul says have to occur, but the first two uh, are connected with each other. The apostasy is connected with the revealing of a certain historical person. His revealing is the second event which must occur before the great tribulation can begin. And his revealing is what marks the beginning of those seven troubled years. And so in verse 3 it says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. And so those events happen in concurrence with one another. You can see them as separate events, but they happen at the same time. So there's a, there's a, uh, a final apostasy, uh, the apostasy, the great one, and then the man of sin is revealed. John Walverd says, apostasy which today is general is going to become specific. It will be headed up in the particular person mentioned here. Think of, uh, for a minute, of all the evil, wicked world leaders throughout history and up to today, all the dictators and the despots. This man will be the worst of them, so much so that he can be called the man of sin. Uh, I, I mean, so I guess if you wanted to put it in perspective, you'd look at Hitler and you'd say, that was a man of sin. And you look at Mussolini, that was a man of sin. Stalin, a man of sin. Assad in Syria, a man of sin. But there's coming the man of sin, the guy that is going to embody the devil and at one point be possessed by the devil. He will be the one who most typifies sin and rebellion against God. He'll, he's also called the son of perdition, and we're happy for that because perdition means destruction, and it indicates his ultimate fate. And his ultimate fate, we'll see, is in verse 8. He's going to be destroyed. Uh, he will not be successful. Now, we commonly call this man the Antichrist. He has about 30 names in the Bible. He's a real man who comes on the scene and enforces a treaty with the nation of Israel that brings a temporary peace to the Middle East. He'll be hailed, obviously, as a political and military genius, but he will be revealed at some point as the Antichrist. Now, we... Um, we know that the, he will be revealed uh, when he signs that treaty with Israel. Anybody who's reading their Bible can know that, that that's the guy. Uh, but he will be totally revealed midway through the tribulation when he goes into the rebuilt Jewish temple and says, hey, guess what? I'm God, and uh, you guys are going to worship me or I'm going to kill you. Uh, and so... You cannot be in the great tribulation if this person has not been revealed. Has he been revealed? No. He may be alive. Uh, you know, every gen you know, at some point the Antichrist is alive and, and then he comes on the scene. Uh, so the Antichrist may be alive today, uh, you know, but he has not been revealed. And so whatever you think about the rapture and whether the catching away and all this... This part at least is clear. The Bible is saying the, the man of sin has to be revealed in order for you to be in the great tribulation, and he's not. So some people say, well, he's going to be revealed midway through, so we can go through half of it. No, he's going to be revealed at the moment that treaty is signed. There's not going to be any doubt from a biblical point. We'll be in heaven already, but if you were on the earth, you could say, hey, that's the guy because he's the one that's guaranteeing the peace of Israel He's the one that's going to uh, destroy the world. And so he has to be revealed. 
Verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so this guy wants to be God. Both the prophet Daniel and the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of an event they called the abomination of desolation. Kind of just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? Be a great movie title the abomination of desolation. It's when the Antichrist comes into that temple and defiles its holy of holies, demanding to be worshipped as God. It will occur in the very middle of the great tribulation, three and a half years into it. Now skip verse 5 for a moment, and let's read verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, Now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, Now, these verses aren't easy, but they're not impossible either. I said that there were three events which occur before the great tribulation could begin, which show the church must be raptured ahead of time. And this is the third. First of all, the mystery of lawlessness is our understanding as Christians that there's a devil who is definitely at work in the world seeking to overthrow the rule of the sovereign God. The devil's ultimate aim is exactly what he lied about to Eve in the Garden of Eden, to be like God. The devil wanted to be like God. That's why he fell from his glory and then he tried that and, and he brought that into the human race. He says, I want to be like God. You should want to be like God. Let's be like God. Uh, and then he gets finally his ultimate glory in the tribulation when uh, he possesses the Antichrist and demands to be worshipped. Uh, something and someone is said to be restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. That's what makes these verses a little bit tricky for some people. I say something because of the wording, you know what is restraining. Sounds like a thing. And I say someone because this same restrainer is referred to by a masculine participle, he who now restrains. So something is restraining, he is doing the restraining. Uh, And so this restrainer, it's both something and someone well known to the church whose power is great enough to hold back the devil. And we say it is, in fact, God the Holy Spirit and the church, which is his temple on the earth today. You know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit individually, but even more so, the body of Christ, the corporate body of Christ, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems here that the Scripture is pretty clear that he and it will be taken out of the way before Antichrist can be revealed. And this can only refer, in my mind, to the rapture of the church. God the Holy Spirit has always been in the world, and he always will be. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he came to believers in a new and unique way, just as Jesus had promised. He came to indwell and to live within you. The church is the something that acts as a restraint to evil being revealed. God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling you is the someone. It is the rapture of the church from the earth to heaven that removes the restraint and the restrainer so that all hell can break loose during the great tribulation. And during that terrible time, God, the Holy Spirit, will still be present on the earth, but he won't be resident on the earth. It's really very simple. The tribulation cannot begin until the Antichrist is revealed and with him comes the great apostasy, and the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the church is removed, the Spirit-filled church. 
Therefore, we say the rapture occurs before the great tribulation. Verse 5, we skipped it. Let's go back to it. It says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, I, I don't think Paul is chastising them. I, I think he just, you know, saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm consistent with what I've said in the past. We're not making this up. We're not figuring this out as we go. This is set. Uh, I told you this, and I want you to remember this. And they probably did. They probably did remember but still they became troubled. Uh, Christians, we can be more easily troubled than we'd like to admit. No matter how mature you are in the Lord, how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter how intelligent you are on a natural basis, you know, no matter your education or how smart you are, you can become troubled a lot easier than you think Uh, by certain things. And all of us would have something that bothers us more than something else. I've seen this in my own life over the years. I've seen it in the lives of others who, you know, somebody will come along and they'll make a suggestion to them about something in their Christian walk. And they, they almost become obsessed about it, thinking, man, am I really walking with the Lord if I don't do this one thing that this guy says? Um, People call and they say, I just heard so-and-so on the radio say this, and what, what do you think? Because it, it sounds like I'm not doing that, and am I, am I a Christian? And, you know, and people get troubled by these things. Uh, and, so, and it doesn't even have to be a false teaching. It just might be an overemphasis on a biblical truth that gets you off track in your walk with the Lord. I've known a lot of Christians who were doing just fine. And then all of a sudden, somebody with a pet doctrine, a pet teaching, you know, the one thing that they always want to talk about that isn't Jesus, that's just something that they want to talk about all the time, they start moving you in that direction. You start to become trouble thinking, well, gosh, yeah, I, you know, maybe I should think that way as well. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we need to be careful. We need to remember the things that we've been taught by the Lord. Now, we understand that there are different views on the timing of the rapture with regard to the great tribulation, and maybe some of you hold them, and that's fine. We, we can get along. Uh, you know, I, I don't even ridicule people as much as I used to uh, publicly. I, I very, I've calmed down in my old age. I, you know, I, you know I, it must be tough being wrong, but, uh, you know, it's just we, we have these beliefs. But I would point out that the view you hold, if you really hold it, it ought to influence your behavior. If you think, and by you I mean just a generic you, not anybody here in particular, but if a person thinks that the church will go into or even through even a part of the great tribulation, then you ought to really be preparing like a survivalist. You really should. I mean, if that, I tell you what, if I believe that, then I would be storing up. I remember when we were approaching Y2K. Remember Y2K? Anybody remember that? There were people, and I, again, if you were one of them, I don't remember and I don't know and I'm not ridiculing you, but there were people who were calling the church and wanting to know if we, if we were going to buy generators and, um, you know, we didn't own a building at that time, so they were calling and said, well, we could use, these people have, you know, property and we could build a little storage facility on their property. This was an actual suggestion that we build a warehouse 
uh, on our on this particular property and store it and buy some generators for when Y2K hit so that we could, you know, help the church and stuff. And, and I just said, yeah, we're not going to do that. You want to do that, have, have a field day, you know, but I don't think anything's going to happen. And happily, I was right, you know, and so were a lot of other people. But, you know, so, but the thing is, there were Christians who, who sincerely believed that Y2K was going to be a big problem. And you know what they did? They stored up water and food. And I say, good for you. You had the courage of your convictions to do what you thought was really going to happen. So the next time somebody tells you, well, we're going to go through part of the tribulation, we're going to be here for the tribulation, tell them you want to go, to, you want to go right now to their garage and see their preparations. If they're not making any preparation for going into the great tribulation, they don't really believe that we're going into it. Or they just are committing tribulation suicide, I guess, you know. I mean, seriously. Every now and then, about every, it cycles about every seven years, somebody comes to the church that's always a different person who believes that they are called to be a commando in the great tribulation. That when the rapture happens, God's going to leave them behind. They're not, they're not the 144,000. They're not the two witnesses. They are a secret, part of a secret commando force that God is raising up. And um, we always are worried about those folks because you never know what they're going to do. But uh, anyway, so, but at least they have the courage of their convictions. Now, instead, because you and I believe that the rapture is pre-trib and imminent, we have an urgency to minister and share the gospel and further the kingdom of God, and that's the business that we're about. And so if people say, well, you know, what do you believe? Well, we believe that the Lord could come at any moment, and that's why we preach the gospel, and that's why we emphasize the gospel, because we're looking for that last Christian of the Christian era before the Lord's trumpet sounds. And so we want to keep it up until we're taken up. Amen? Amen. 